You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so Be'ezras Hashem, tonight we're continuing with our series of Shirim, The Inner World of Trauma. And tonight we're going to be picking up where we left off over the past few Shirim, where we've spoken about the reality of trauma as the basis of growth in an individual's life, the birthplace of emergence, and how, contrary to popular belief, the world was not prearranged in an orderly way only to descend into disorder, but rather the world was created in a disorderly way, emerging into stages of order. So that the traumatic, chaotic, unknowing, and bilbul and confusion of all things was present prior to any human cause for it. And instead of looking at the traumas, the breakdowns of our lives as symptoms or consequences of a failed plan, we allow ourselves to look at them as stepping stones towards the ultimate plan of how things are supposed to unfold through the chaos into order. We spoke about the entrance into time awareness and how trauma brings with it a dual sense of time where a person is always afterwards, always caught up in something that has just taken place, never quite able to reach back beyond the boundary of time to grab hold of exactly what the event was, always struggling to reorient ourselves and to remember it, which led us to the breakdown of language and the rehabilitation of language, attempting to make order in a world that applies language to things, but language has shattered for us, and to create new tzirufim chadashim. We spoke about the memory of trauma or post-traumatic memory, wherein we were not present for the event itself, and therefore our memory is not necessarily a processing of something that has taken place in the past, but rather a re-experiencing of something that is taking place in real time. And that leads us to what we're going to discuss today, which is roughly titled the splitness or the division, the divided self. Now, typically speaking, and again, a lot of what we need to try and do when we talk about trauma, whether it be a capital T trauma or a lowercase t trauma, is really just correct a lot of the misnomers that we have when it comes to trauma. Because if trauma is a fundamental aspect built into the very fabric of reality, or even deeper, it is the birthplace of reality itself, then one can see reality as a post-traumatic thing, that existence is post-traumatic. And therefore, if we continue to look at trauma as a deviation from the norm, when in truth it is the very norm itself, we continue to re-traumatize ourselves because like we've spoken about, the trauma is the sudden appearance of something unexpected. The trauma is the sudden 
entrance into the scene of something that was not yet present, but something that appears suddenly and shatters my expectations. But if I am able to actually make room for the fact that trauma is the ground upon which all things rest, and that in the end of the day, it's Roka Ha'aretz Al Hamayim, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu spreads out the flimsiness of the ground upon the chaotic waters that threaten to swallow up order at any given moment, if not for the order and the semblance of control that HaKadosh Baruch Hu plays in the world, then we wouldn't be able to pick ourselves up. But if we continue to see trauma as a deviation from the norm, as a secret that can't be spoken about, as something that is too traumatizing to speak about, then we will continually be surprised at every moment of awareness because awareness itself brings us into contact with that lowercase t trauma. And again, it doesn't have to be a capital T trauma, God forbid, but in the words of Chazal, they have the most liberal opinion imaginable as what it means to be someone who is traumatized. And that is simply somebody who encounters anything in life that does not align directly with their desire and their will. If we pay attention to it enough, if we're sensitive enough and we contemplate what it means for me as an individual who believes in direct governance of God in my life in Hashkacha Pratis, to not get what I want is traumatizing enough. And Halavai, all of us should become aware of the traumatizing kernel of reality from the simplest of traumas, from reaching my hand into my pocket expecting four coins and finding three, or expecting one thing to be one way and suddenly being thrown into the reality that it's not that way. But when we stop thinking of trauma as this ugly secret that needs to be hidden away and repressed and suppressed under all manners of defense mechanisms that simply perpetuate the trauma and, and elevate the perpetuation of the person engaged in the trauma and so on and so forth, we allow ourselves to make room with the conversation. Now, it might be an uncomfortable conversation. It might be a difficult concept to look at. It's something that makes us want to flinch. But once again, our job as B'nai Adam, as human beings, is to be mitmodeid with reality or in the language of Bill W., the founding father of Alcoholics Anonymous, to gaze unflinchingly at the reality of life as life actually is in this moment. That is the goal of what it means to be a human being. That is the goal of what it means to have a, a nefesh ha-sikhlis, of an of a intellectual soul that is capable of grasping reality. And so talking about trauma is really less of developing edifices or palaces of thought and much more just correcting some of the most basic mis, misthinking or, or mistakes that we have with regards to trauma. And what we're going to speak about today is what it means to be a human being. We've spoken about all of the framing of what it means to be a human being. We've spoken about time awareness. We've spoken about memory. We've spoken about creation itself. We've spoken about language, the tools that human beings utilize to harness the chaotic world. What we haven't touched upon is what does it mean to be a human being? And to begin with, we'll begin with the typical assumption, which in one way or another does not necessarily fit in with the truth of the truth as it's expressed in Panimiya Satora. And therefore, because it's not aligned with the most essential teachings available to us, it leads us astray and it leads us into a space where the ideas are no longer going to be working for us properly. The typical assumption that we make as human beings is that the ideal or the goal that a human being is meant to live with is to have a singular and unified spirit, a singular and unified holistic approach to this worldliness where everything fits very neatly into one 
brushstroke of a narrative where everything, all of the disparate events in my life, all of the different parts of myself operate in unison. And I may begin in a state of chaos, but ultimately the goal is to find unity. The goal is to find a state of pure unification where nothing is in distortion with anything else, where there's no binary opposition and everything moves very smoothly. And because that ideal, that perfection that we so desire as human beings is taught to us from a very young age, unconsciously or consciously, indoctrinated consciously or unconsciously, the goal becomes perfection, the goal becomes uniformity, the goal becomes easy living and a semblance of control over the circumstances that surround us. And we place at the pedestal of what the good life looks like, a life that is lived with a sense of unification, a life that is lived with a seamlessness where there's no distraction, no distortion, no separation within the self, but everything is the same no matter what. The person knows exactly how they're going to react. The person knows what their characteristics are, what their strengths are, what their deficiencies are. And the goal is going to be unity. The goal is going to be an unbridled form of unity that dispels any difference, that gets rid of any distortion, that gets rid of the gnarly knots that we encounter that make life difficult. And the goal is to smooth it out, to untangle the knots, and to live a life of pure calmness and pure direct immediate consciousness of that which is around us. And placed at the ideal, especially as a Greek ideal or a Roman ideal, so what we have come to encounter in our lives is not only the inability to live up to such an ideal, because no human being can live up to such an ideal, but not only are we pushed into a space where we can't live up to the ideal that we're told to live up to, but we're made to feel personally responsible for the breakdown of that idealism. That the fact that my life might be scattered, the fact that I might see difference in the world, the fact that on a Monday I could wake up feeling one way, and on a Tuesday I could wake up feeling the next way, or as Rabbi Nachman teaches us, from one moment to the next, I can feel like an entirely different person. We see this scatteredness, we see the, the buzzing, expression of the self in all of its various varieties, we see that as a deviation from the correct path. We see that as a symptom of bad living. We see that as a consequence of transgressive behavior. We see that as a post-fall experience. And so not only are we incapable of living that ideal of seamless unity within the self where all things fit into one another and all things make sense, but we're made to feel personally responsible for our inability to live up to that ideal. And when we are trained or taught or educated in the pathway of feeling personally responsible for not living up to an impossible ideal, very often what may have been healthy in another circumstance as a concept of guilt which is a legalistic term, which tells me that I'm responsible for particular behaviors that I may have engaged in. I'm responsible to fix that which needs to be fixed in the world. Guilt very quickly transforms itself into shame and busha and shame bury a person. 
Shame does not propel a person to taking a stance in their life of trying to extricate themselves or untether themselves from their stuckness or to detach themselves from their physicality. Shame buries me further into my physicality. Shame tells me that not that I have done something wrong, but that I am wrong. It's not that I am a unified person who simply has not lived up to that unity of the self yet, but rather I am separation. I am the problem. And when a person tends to see themselves as the problem, Problem, while guilt in a healthy way can propel a person forwards to take accountability or responsibility over the actions that they have perpetrated in whatever state of mind they may have been in, shame buries the individual. Shame tells the individual that they are the problem, not that there's a problem that I encounter, but that I am the problem. So adding insult onto injury, not only are we incapable of living up to this kind of fantastical ideal of, of seamless unity, of perfection of the self, where all things operate in unison and I get to choose my emotional state and I get to only experience happiness and there's no distortion in my life. Not only am I not living up to this fantastical ideal that I've been told that lives just beyond the horizon of the mind, but I'm made to feel personally responsible and shameful over it. And the Piazetz Nerebbe Hashem Yom Komdomo has a very penetrating insight when it comes to the poisonous nature of shame. What happens when an individual begins to feel responsible, personally responsible for their inability to live up to an impossible ideal that it wasn't even their choice to live in accordance with that ideal. That was an ideal that was thrown onto them. That was an ideal that they were born into, a pre-existing ideal of perfection and seamless unity. The Piazetz Nareb writes in his diary that was written in the years of hell, from within hell itself in the Warsaw Ghetto, Tzavaziruz, the Piazetz Nerebbe Hashem Yim Komdoma writes as follows. He says that Rishoyim Meleim Charatos, that the wicked ones are filled with shame, are filled with a sense of shame. So what is it about the Rishoyim that are filled with shame? Shame seemingly seems to be a process of tshuva. Shame seemingly seems to be a part of the process working towards healthiness, working towards the ideals. But the Piazetz Nerebbe says as follows. He says that the feeling of shame is that I feel so low about my inability to live up to my ideals. I feel so low about my status in life that I'm paralyzed within the self. It is the swampland of the soul, as the analysts have described it. And when I find myself stuck in shame, I'm saturated with such an overwhelming feeling of shame that I can't move to the left, to the right, up or down. Thankfully, says the Piazetz Nareba, the human mind is incapable of holding itself with attention to one particular emotion for any given period of time. So we feel this paralyzing sense of shame where we identify ourselves not as individuals who fail, but as our failures, not individuals who can't live up to that false ideal of perfection, but rather the manifestation or the embodiment of imperfection that we become the problem. And once that emotion dissipates as all emotions or as all thoughts tend to dissipate due to the attention deficit that all human beings encounter at the very core of their selves, so we tend to think, wow, the emotion was there, the emotion has dissipated, I must have worked through my stuff. I must have done the work necessary to get over that feeling. When in truth, all that has happened is that my mind was not capable of maintaining that negative feeling for too long. So I'm filled with shame. Shame feels like I'm doing the work of rectifying myself. When in truth, all it is is a feeling that digs me deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the stuckness of myself, continuously reminding me that not only am I unworthy of change for the positive, but I am incapable of change for the positive. 
And this false ideal of perfection, this false idea of seamless unity buries us because when an individual looks at their lives, when an individual is honest enough with themselves to, to gaze for a moment at what an hour of experience as a human being actually feels like, a person will come to terms with the fact that it is pure scatteredness, that there are millions, myriad different expressions of the self, myriad desires that emerge from places that are known and from places that are unknown, from conscious pockets of energy and from unconscious pockets of energy, from memories that precede us and memories that proceed us, right? We are overcome by all sorts of different colors and rays of experience to the extent that if a person tries to pay attention for even a moment as to what their thoughts are thinking, they'll come to encounter the fact that there is a freeway going through my mind of thousands and thousands of vehicular thoughts that are moving through my mind without my given permission, and I have no idea which way I am meant to go. The human mind is entangled. The human self is entangled within itself. It split. And when we encounter that, if we're told that the ideal is seamless unity, where there's no difficulty, where there's no struggle, where there's no fear, where there's no anticipatory grief, where there's no anxiety, then a person is going to look at their current state and feel terrible about themselves, blame themselves for it, feel miserable about it. Now, this faulty idea that the ideal is seamless unity, that the ideal is a non-traumatized way of living, of living life in a smooth procession from A to B to C to D to E with a sturdy ground resting underneath our feet at every moment. This has trickled into our own understanding of the Torah HaKadosh itself. Generally speaking, as many, many people will attest to, the given understanding of Torah Shebechsav, the given understanding of the grand narrative, the stories that rest at the very core of our minds and our hearts, the story of the Eitz Adas, the story of Adam and Chav and Gan Eden, is that human beings were created perfectly, the world was created perfectly, everything was perfect, and had it not been for Adam HaRishon partaking from the Eitz Adas, Tovara, entering into that subjective state of good and bad, as a result that the behest of following Chava's words, following the, the seduction of the snake, then everything would have remained perfect. And because we as human beings represented by the primordial Adam are responsible and the guilt bearers of that shattering of that perfect ideal and the entrance into the imperfect reality, we see ourselves as guilty, responsible, shameful, and we spend our entire lives fighting to return back to a place that we don't even remember. We spend our lives living with a sense of bidyeved, that our duplicitous experience, the broken experience and the multifarious experience of all of the different hues and colors and sounds and smells of our lives, we see that as an unfortunate symptom that needs to be rectified. And as long as I have not rectified it yet, I have not done my job properly. So I judge myself unfavorably and I find myself stuck within the patterns of guilt and shame and quite literally not being present in my life because I feel that the scatteredness, the multiplicitous way that my life experiences itself and expresses itself is a mistake, is a bidyevet. But thankfully, as Chazal and our Mikubalim teach us very clearly, there's a mistake that has trickled into our understanding. And the mistake is simply that perfection was ever a possibility. Adam and Chava were not perfect before the Chayt of the Eitz Adas. The world was not perfect before Shvira Sakelim. 
If anything is created by definition, that means that it is no longer God. And if it is no longer God, it is no longer perfect. It is axiomatic for the individual to believe at every step of the way that the perfection, the infinitude of godliness is always above and beyond the perfectibility or our ability as created creatures to ascend upon the rungs of spiritual growth. And no matter how high along the rungs of spiritual growth we climb as an individual, as a species, as a collective, as a historical process, we will always already find ourselves lagging ever so slightly behind the infinite itself. That is not the result of a deficiency within the human being. That is not the symptom of bad behavior. That is not some sinful shameful trace that we try and scrub off, but it is the ontological reality of what it means to be a human being. To be a human being means to be born in a space where perfection is no longer possible because the only thing that is perfect is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the world itself was never meant to be perfect. We're told already in the narrative of Gan Eden that Adam and Chava were placed in Gan Eden to cultivate it and to guard it. Both the word cultivation and guarding imply a prevention of something negative taking place. Cultivating for the sake of allowing growth to take place because the natural elements of reality will not prepare growth to take place organically. And guarding it means to protect it from some threat that stands outside of it. Now, if Adam and Chava, prior to the Chet of Eitz Adas, prior to that original lapse, that original transgressive entrance into the duplicitous nature of good and bad, if everything was perfect, then what need is there for warning them to guard it and to watch it? What need is there for them to cultivate anything? If everything is perfect, then theoretically it would just be about guiding, guarding the ideal of perfection. But what we see as explicitly expressed in the Leshem Shabbat in the Orachayim HaKadosh is that the world was still deficient, not because it was missing something that should have been there, but because that is the very nature of the world, to be mechusr, to be deficient, which shows us immediately that the ideal of perfection or the ideal that things are supposed to be seamless without a need for guarding, without a need for cultivating, is a foreign idea. It's something that has trickled into our understanding of the Chet of the Yitzhadas as if it was perfect and then it got un imperfect, when in reality it was always imperfect. It's just a different type of imperfection. The imperfection is not the result of human frailty. It's not the result of human symptoms of being a human being who's stuck in transgressive tendencies, but it's the reality of being a creation. To be a creation means to be mechusser, means to try and reach back up to that place of shlemus which I'm barred access from. And so we have to reorient ourselves and be aware of the fact that it was never perfect. It was never meant to be perfect. This is how things always were supposed to be. Things were always supposed to be duplicitous. Things were always supposed to manifest through difference, through distortion, through the various voices that seem to be in opposition to one another. And if this is true about reality itself, then all the more so is it true about the human being. The human being was never created perfect. The human being was never created with a sense of unity. The human being has always already been split and divided into disparate parts of the self. We see this explicitly, the Leshem Shvobachaloma, in one of the most complex pieces of his teaching, where he's describing the Oilama Samalbush, where he's talking about the possibility of a Shvira in the place where the concept of Shvira should be an impossibility. That shattering, which we typically identify as the birthplace of the broken, scattered reality that we live in, 
So that is a particular point along the map of Kabbalistic cosmology. But there are certain areas, certain spaces written about by the Arizal and various Talmidim where we're already talking about infinitude, we're already talking about perfection. And it's in those places where a person can be seduced into the fact that there was no brokenness here, everything was perfect, and it only descended into brokenness afterwards. But what Leshem Shavuva Chaloma points out in the 38th parak in his Shar HaPoyne Kadim, where he describes the Olamas Amalbush, the Leshem describes the split that takes place at the very foundation of all of existence. At the highest point in the Olamas Amalbush, a place where typically speaking, we don't talk about anything resulting in shattering or splitting or brokenness. What we see there is this language of Nisdak Hayasod, the foundation was split at its core. The foundation was split into two expressions, two zramim, two paths that diverge at a particular point, and it's not clear which path the individual is going to be following. Those two paths are the paths of Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. We see already that redemption, the concept of Mashiach, the concept of perfection, is always already split in half. It's always already two identifiable markers of it. The Mashiach of the house of Yosef and the Mashiach of the house of David. Yehuda and Yosef, as the Ishbetzer Tzadikim tell us, that the ideal of human spirituality and subjectivity is always already split. Rav Salavechik, Slusia Ganalenu, explains this explicitly and amazingly clearly in The Lonely Man of Faith where utilizing two different narrative structures of the creation of Adam HaRishon, we see as the Rav Shusio Ganalenu famously splits for us, there is a dichotomy at the heart of the individual. There is Adam one and there is Adam two. There is man nature and there's man persona. There is scientific man and philosophical man. There is the man of prose and the man of poetry. There is control and lack of control. There is the man of the heavens and man of the earth. The human being is perpetually split into two. This is not a symptom. This is not a symptom of some trauma, but this is the very fabric of what it means to be a human being. Typically, when we think about trauma, when we think about the breakdown that takes place in the life of the individual, so we think that prior to the trauma, the individual lived a seamless life of unity where the self was contained by itself and all things made sense and there was no disparity and there was no confusion and then enter the trauma the ground splits open it reveals itself to be split it reveals itself to be torn and afterwards as a result of the post-traumatic symptoms and settling into a post-traumatic life the individual is now forced to grapple with the fact that wow perhaps i am now split Perhaps there was me before the trauma and me after the trauma, me prior to the expectation and me post the expectation. But in truth, the trauma is not creating the split. The trauma is revealing what at the depth of ourselves we've already always known to be true, which is that things are split in this world, that that in truth, the land is much less sturdy than we give ourselves credit for, that in truth, we have a lot less control than we would like to imagine in this world all of which is simply cultivating the individual for an entrance into faith, a faith that is beyond, a faith that is beyond the rational knowledge of unity. Again, it's not only Rav Soloveitchik who points out this typology of the splitness of the self as being not a secondary symptomatic way of relating to human beings, but rather as the essential way of looking at human beings. The Balatanya, 
in Safran Shal Again, Safran Shal the Bainani, which implies that a person is in between. To be in between, to be betwixt and between, to be in a liminal space means that I'm grappling two edges. It is not simply being in a state of unity. It is being in a split state. The Bainani is here and there. It has a Nefesh Alokus and it has a Nefesh Bahamas. There is a godly soul that seeks to attach itself above and there's an animalistic soul that tends to drag itself downwards. Again, we have the Balatanya who's giving us insight into how to be a human being, and he opens it up with the splitness of the self. Uh, a person can ask, what about the ideal of the unified self? What about the ideal where all there is is a nefesh alukus? That's not part of the conversation. That's not part of the reality. A person who wants only nefesh alukus, a person who only wants to be one Adam instead of the other Adam, is a person who is choosing to live a life of suffering because they're never going to be able to live that false ideal of human perfectibility or perfection. But rather what we need to do is at the very sight of human experience to accept upon ourselves the fact that things are torn, things are split, things are divided, things are duplicitous. That's what it means to be a human being. Davin Malka Mashiach tells us explicitly, Achas Dibra Loikim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke once, Vishtayim Zushamati, and I heard twice. The human mind is incapable, is not able to return back to that original point of unity, which is only in the space of godliness. We always live in the echo and the translation of that which was just prior to our conscious awareness, that unified state, which we're always becoming aware of just after we have left that unified state. Or as the Ramchal Shusiaganalenu points out in his Akdama to Masil Shisharim, rather in the first parak, that to be a human being in this world is to be an individual who is thrown into an always all what already raging battle. There's always already a battle between the mind that seeks to connect itself and to cleave with godliness and to connect to godliness and the body or other parts of the psyche which seek to detract from that connectivity. That the Mesilas Yesharim, the path of the just, the beginning of the path towards Ruach HaKodesh is not one that begins or ends with seamless unity, where there's no trauma, where there's no fissure, where there's no brokenness of the ground, but rather it takes into consideration the very simple fact that everything is always already broken, but not broken in a melancholic way, not broken in a depressive type of way, broken in a reality type of way. That if we accept upon ourselves that things are torn, then we can begin to engage in the work of sewing things back together of reunifying the frayed edges of our experience, as opposed to judging ourselves negatively for not living in that false state of perfection as an ideal, which I've never tasted, nor will I ever taste, but it will simply be some pipe dream. And if I can taste some object or some substance in this world that creates a semblance of perfection, if I can stuff myself enough, if I have enough money, a big enough house, enough substance to not pay attention to the self. So I become seduced and numbed into the notion that, oh, unified simplicity, singularity of the self is the goal. When in reality, that's a pipe dream, that's intoxication. That's the opposite of prayer. Prayer is born out of the duplicitous nature of the soul. Prayer is born out of the confrontation between moment to moment existence that my own needs and my desire to praise God. That splitness, that duality, that need to unify the frayed edges in order to come closer to God is the very prerequisite for encountering godliness. The opposite is idolatry, it's idolatry of the self. It's to believe that I can be perfect. And if I believe I can be perfect and singular in myself, then there's not much separating me from godliness anymore. 
And theoretically, a person can come to think that, yeah, if I can accomplish perfection, then I can accomplish godliness. When in Yiddishkeit, that's the, that's the biggest avodas are in the world, the notion that a person can be perfect. We've said this already from the Lashem Shabbat that we learn this from Moshe Rabbeinu, so that the Torah makes it very clear to us that this is not simply a symptom of being human, and if I fail, that's why I'm imperfect, but theoretically, perfection and seamless unity can be an ideal. We learn it from Moshe because there was no one quite like Moshe, and even Moshe was incapable of grasping singular unity. Even Moshe Rabbeinu was incapable of grasping the panim, that a person cannot see me, a person cannot be perfect and continue to live as an individual. But Moshe Rabbeinu himself was barred access, which comes to show us that it is not a symptom of human functioning, but rather it is a feature of human functioning. I am split, therefore I am. I am doubled, therefore I am. That everything in my life is bekfelus. It's doubled over itself. There's two options in front of the person. That's what it means to be a balbachira. The Pasuk tells us in the second parak of the of Parshas Bereshis, it says, So HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates the individual and gives him the capacity towards speech, gives him the capacity towards language. Again, language is always a byproduct of living in splitness and trying to emerge from that splitness back into unity. But the first word, Vayitzer, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the person, is spelled out with two yuds. Why is Vayitzer spelled out with two yuds? Rashi says as follows, Vayitzer, he was created, which implies two things, Shtei Yitziros, Yitziros la'olam hazeh, Yitziros that the individual at the very inception point of their creation is split. There is a duplicitous doubling at the heart of that singular gesture of creation. It's not that one split into two because of some symptom that I wasn't able to withhold myself and stand in accordance with the level of what it would mean to be one. One immediately manifests as two. Like Rabbi Nachman says at the end of his famous story, there's one that is two and there's two that is one. It is the recognition that when I understand inherently within myself that I am two, then I have access to the one of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But when I think that I am one, then my relationship with God is going to be doubled already. That the human being needs to learn how to accept our tornness, how to accept the division of the self, the Yetzir HaTov and the Yetzir Hara. This is clear as day when a person looks at the psychology of what the Arizal is describing to us. The very beginning of Shah Gagulim describes explicitly based on the Zohar Kadosh, ah, you have a singular unified person. Guess what? You're not singular and you're not unified. What you believe to be unity is in fact split into two, which is in fact three, which is in fact four, which is in fact five. You're not just a Nefesh, you're a Ruach, you're a Neshama, you're a Chaya, and you're a Yechida. You're Dibur, you're Machshava, and you're Maisa. Human beings are splintered creatures who contain multitudes within themselves. We contain multitudes within ourselves. We contradict ourselves. We live in a world of paradox. That's not a symptom, but that's the feature of what it means to be a human being. To understand the b'chol that I have to serve HaKadosh Baruch with all of it, with both parts of myself, with the part that believes in good and the part that's stuck in bad, with the part that is moving upwards and the part that is being dragged downwards. To be a human being means to live with that doubled nature of the self. And only once we accept that, 
only once we accept the very simple fact that there's a doubledness to us, that there's a splitness to us, then can we begin working towards the ideal. Then can we begin the process of doing the work of moving out of the trauma, moving out of the awareness that, wow, I'm a creature and I'm always going to live in a world of separation. Now, once I accept that as a given fact and I forgive myself for it and I no longer judge myself or shame myself for it, then I can work towards mending those wounds. Then I could work towards unifying that which was previously disparate. This is what the Magid of Mizrich tells us by the Pasuk of that the trumpets that were blown in times of Milchama, that the trumpets that were blown in times of preparing oneself for Geula, the word Chatzotzros can also be read or misread deliberately as Chatzitzuros, as, as two half forms. For the individual to live with the deep awareness that I am always only a half. I am always only a half yearning towards a higher half. I am always only partial. I am not whole, I am not perfect. I have a partial understanding. This is what Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, Slusia Ganelenu, writes about in Chayrev, where he describes why Chazal allow us to live in accordance with Rove. Why is it that halachic logic is dictated by the law of the majority? And very simply, Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch points out is because we don't have anything more than the majority. Nobody has perfection. Nobody has the holistic perspective. We live in a world that is broken. And in a broken world, all we have is our conjecture. All we have is our hashra. All we have is our estimation. And all we can do is try our best. When a person makes room for that, and instead of seeing that as some secondary permissive way of you know, allowing ourselves to take ourselves a little bit less seriously, we can see this as the ontological framing of what it means to be a human being, of achas dibra loikim shtayim zushamati, echad shehu one that is two, two that is one. That's what it means to be a chatzitzura. Rav Avram Abulafia speaks about this concept as well, where he describes that the goal of the human being is to live as a chatzi and a shalem at once. I have to have one eye on my splitness and one eye on the unity that I can try and grow towards. But the moment I only focus on the splitness or the moment I only focus on the desired unity, I am lost. A person has to take the chatzi, the half, and the shalem and the whole and marry them together like we're told about Mashiach who's going to be a kesar and a palgate kesar. It's going to be a Caesar and half of a Caesar. Right? We have to take the half and the whole and marry it together to reveal that the goal of human life is to take those disparate traumatic edges of experience and to sew them back together. This is Moshe, Moshe, Avram, Avram, Yaakov, Yaakov, that the Avos HaOilam are referred to in a double nature, Rashbi, Rashbi. Why? So the typical understanding is that there's a Rashi Lamala and a Rashbi Lamata, a Moshe Lamala and a Moshe Lamata. But in truth, it's also speaking to the Yitzhah HaTov and the Yitzhah HaRav, both of these Sadiqim, that there's two parts to us. We contain multitudes within ourselves. This is what it means to try and begin to unify things once again. Rav Yisrael Salanter, Slusia Ganalenu writes in his Yigar Sachuva that Ha'adam Chafshi V'Demyoinoi V'Asr B'Sichlo that the individual is free in their imagination and contained within their intellect. 
Now, Bederach Klal, the way Rabbi Yisrael Salanter theoretically meant that, as many of the Bali Musr interpreted, is that this freedom of imagination is the opposite of Musr. The freedom of imagination takes a person away from the truth of their experience, keeps them caught up in their imaginative desires, and that's a bad thing. It takes us away from the ideal. And Asr Basichlo means that we are structured and in control when we're in our intellect. But aside from the fact that for Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, we already see the splitness, at the, the splitness at the heart of human experience as well, that there's the dimyon and then there's the seichel. I heard something incredible from my Rebbe, Rav Moshe Weinberger Shlita, that there's another way of reading this letter from Rav Yisrael Salanter. The Balei Musa read the Ha'adam Chafshi B'demyono, a person is free in their imagination and contained within their intellect as a, ne a negative statement about imagination. But what Rav Weinberger pointed out is that there's a way of reading it that Ha'adam Asr Basichlo, the person is stuck within their intellect. If I live only in accordance with my intellect, then I'm stuck within the confines of my intellect. But when I live with my dimyon, when I live in the space of rectified imagination, that's where I find chofesh, that's where I find freedom. Ha'adam chafshi b'demyono. I'm only free when I enter into that place of imagination. And that place of imagination is taking things that seem separate from one another and allowing them to come together in a state of unification. To be miyachid yehudim, to make unifications, to sew things back together, to unify the tears, to cement in the cracks of experience, is not to go from two to one and pretending that two never existed, but it's to accept the nature of the two-ness of reality, of the duplicity of reality, of the duplication of things, of the doubledness of things, of the ma'arasa the double nature of experience. But when we mind the two and we decide to sew them back together, even though we know that the parts of ourselves can never truly be seamlessly unified, but nevertheless, we're willing to sew it back together, we're willing to be miyachid yehudim, we're willing to sew things, we're willing to connect things, we're willing to attach things, we're willing to be dorish smuchim, we're willing to judge one thing against another and make a relationship between the two of them. We're willing to have an Azer Konegdo, we're willing to have the disassociation and association working at once, we're willing to have the unity and the disparity working together. At that point, we're miyachid yichudim. Chazal tell us that Chanuch was tofer na'alayim haya that Chanuch, who was the, the Heilig Tzadik, Chanuch, that he was Osek in being Miyachid Yehudim. And how was he doing that? He was a Tofer Na'alayim, he was a shoe cobbler, he was sewing shoes together. Rav Eliyahu Dessler, in the name of Rav Yisrael points out something very important. He says, if you think that when Chanuch was sitting there sewing shoes, he was contemplating divine names, then you're mistaken. You're not even allowed to do that. In truth, every stitch of the shoe was the miyachid yichudim, because the act of sewing, the act of connecting that which is torn is the work of mending the trauma, of realizing before and after the trauma, I'm okay, I'm the same person, I continue to exist. Even after the splitness of my ego, I continue to be here. Ah, there's various voices going on, but those various voices are what give birth to the beauty of the soul. The beauty of the soul is born out of the Elu Elu that these and those are the word of the living God, that Rav Kuk, when he came to Yafo, he wrote a letter about certain poets of the time, certain secular Jewish poets who were speaking 
so profoundly beautifully about the freedom of the soul, about freeing oneself from the confines and the limitations of being within a halachic framework or being within the minutia of the law and that old time religion, and Maran Harav Rav Kook wrote a letter to Brenner to different literary figures at that time explaining to the world and to them and to himself that in truth, those who feel bogged down by the framework, those who feel that there's no freedom within the framework of Yahadus, within Torah, are in truth warring within themselves a doubled war that they expect more from religion. They expect more from the Torah. They don't want a small God that is confined to that European mindset. They want a big God, a God that is bigger than what they've been indoctrinated with. And in truth, to see their kfira, not as a kfira, but as the possibility of purified emuna, as Rav Kook famously said. And in response to this beautiful essay that Rav Kook wrote, Brenner wrote back that, you know, Chod Harav, you know, we love you, Rav Kook. We respect you, but perhaps you're the one who's torn. Perhaps you're the one with the splitness in the soul because you seem to be confused. We're not confused. You seem to be the one confused and scattered between halacha and the freedom of expression and poetry. And in response to Brenner's claim that Rav Kook's soul was torn, Rav Kook wrote as follows. He who said about me that my soul is torn, Yafa Amar, they spoke properly, they spoke beautifully. Obviously, it's torn. It should be impossible for us to fathom within our minds what it would mean for a person whose soul was not torn. Only an inanimate object is whole in itself. But the individual themselves is a product of warring desires. And that there's an inner battle perpetually waging within the self. And the essential goal of the individual is to unify the tears within the soul through that collective idea that doesn't negate the difference but makes room for the difference allows the difference of the self to reveal a higher level of unity that through that generalized idea all of it the good the bad the trauma the post-trauma the hurt the non-hurt the brokenness and the healing the event and the post-event all of it dance together to give birth to a sense of self higher than what the individual knew and Rav Kook continues, And we understand that in truth, this harmony that the splitness of the soul is seeking to encounter is simply an ideal, meaning it is ultimately an impossibility, but it is something that we perpetually try and yearn towards in spite of its impossibility. And because we continue to yearn in spite of the impossibility of the unity of the self, we taste the unity, even though it's not an essential unity. But to come to a place of absolute unity as opposed to yearning towards unity from the tornness of the soul, that is impossible for any person. But through our effort and through our trying and through our pushing and getting up and finding unity and splitting again and finding more unity and splitting again and finding more unity and splitting again, through that we come closer and closer to the ideal of what it means to be a holistic person. And this is what the Mikubalim referred to when they referred to the concept of Yehudim, of making 
making yichudim, of making connections. It's not a seamless unity, but rather it is a taking of two disparate parts with the individual, sewing it together and revealing a sense of self that is higher than any unity could have possibly ever revealed. Because the song of the self, the fourfold song of the self does not emerge in its singular voice. It emerges out of the doubled, the tripled, the quadrupled experience of concealment upon concealment upon concealment, separation upon separation upon separation, and taking those broken parts and allowing them to sing together to give birth to a song that could not ever be possible if there was only a singular uniform voice taking place. Famously, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov speaks about two types of yichud. He speaks about achdus apashat, he speaks about simple unity, and translated onto a psychological register as a psychological idiom that would mean the non-traumatized individual who lives a life of absolute unity with no discrepancy, with no engagement, with the stuckness and the confines of this world and all of its separation, and that's one level. But the higher level, says Rabbi Nachman, is the It is the unified whole that emerges specifically out of the splintering of colors. That it's one thing to have seamless unity. It's another thing to find unity within the disjointedness of reality. To take all of the various colors, all of the warring sounds in our lives, all of the warring colors in our lives, the traumas, the post-traumas, the moment and after the moment and before the moment, the fixed word and the broken word, and not to see them as separate from one another in, in the need of killing off the negativity and only believing in the good, but it means bringing the negativity into the light of positivity and allowing them to dance together to give birth to the complexity of the spirit, to the naran chai, to the nefesh ruach neshama chai and yichida, and all of the various interlaying parts that give birth to a whole that is greater than the sum total of its parts. And when we're able to accept upon ourselves the very basic notion that the very fact that I am a human being in existence means that I am already split and torn asunder, I can stop fighting for this false idea of perfection and I can accept myself and begin taking the steps forward of choosing the next right thing in the next moment. To end, Rav Dessler famously says, based on the statement of Chazal, that that the sword and the book descended, intertwined together into this world. And what Rav Dessler says is that don't think of these things as two separate things, but every moment can be seen through the lens of the cherev, a disconnecting sword which seeks to bring about more disunity and splinter things apart even more. Or a person can look at the moment through the eyes of the sefer. A sefer is a book that combines various items, various ideas, and merges them together to be contained in a singular place. The job is simple. Our job is to accept the splitness and to be miyachid yichudim, to start sewing things back together, Ezra Hashem. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.